Oh, hey, I'm so glad that you found us. My name's Michael, and I get to be the pastor at Shepherd's Community United Methodist Church in Lakeland, Florida. You're listening to the It's Better When You're Here podcast, where every week we upload the messages that are preached at our church every Sunday. We hope by listening to this, uh, you feel safe, heard, and loved by the God that created you. We hope this message makes an impact in your life. If listening to this makes a difference, reach out to us and connect with us either on social media or on our website, shepherdsumc.com. All right, here's the message. The reading is from Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another and to love and to good deeds not neglecting to meet others as we have in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Gracious God, your word illuminates and it awakens. As your word is read and proclaimed here today, may it Illuminate the paths that you call us to walk down in our lives, and may it awaken us to who you created us to be. In the name of the Christ we pray, amen. For those of you who weren't here last time I had the privilege of preaching here at Shepherds, you might have not remembered me, just found it unremarkable too. I don't want to assume that just because you weren't here doesn't mean why you wouldn't remember me. Uh, My name is Wyatt Robinson. While I may look a little bit like your pastor, Michael, um, I think he just has this habit of trying to find people who look just enough like him to fill the pulpit when he's not here. So then you could say, oh, yeah, I already met the pastor. Um, But nonetheless, we are different people. I always tell him I'm his better-looking younger brother from another mother. But um, I told him I'd say that this morning, too, so I can't forget that one. Um, But my name is Wyatt Robinson, and I serve as one of the chaplains just down the road here at Florida Southern College. Uh, I have the great privilege there of working with all of our religious student groups on campus. That's my primary job, advising all of these groups. Um, uh, While Florida Southern is a small campus of a little over 3,000 students, we have 10 different student organizations that are religious in nature, full of students who participate and different things from worship services to Bible studies um, to times of fellowship together. Um, It's a great privilege to me to have that job and to work with the faith leaders of the future that attend our school and help them see the vision that God has for their lives in the future. Every time I tell new folks that I work with college students, I've been traveling over this summer preaching at different churches for pastors who feel like your Pastor Michael who want a Sunday off and they want to bring me in for that while I'm off over the summer. Um, But every time I do that, go and see new congregations and tell them what I do working with college students, I inevitably get the same question, something related to it. People will say, 
So how do you feel about the future of the church because of what you do? It's not an unfair question to ask of me working with college students and all that. How do you feel about the future of our church? But I think what might be a little bit unfair is that most people aren't being fully honest in the way that they ask that question. They try to put on the niceties of it and they say, how do you feel about the future? I think what they mean to say in that a lot of times is, so how scared should we be for the future of the church? Because you work with young people, so go ahead and let me know how prepared I need to be for the future. Let me say in no uncertain terms before I get to the rest of it today, that from my experience in working with college students here at Florida Southern, at other colleges before that one, um, and working with young people of faith for a while now, the future is very bright for the future of our church, for the future of God's church here in our world, whether it be United Methodist in the way that all of us are here this morning, or the church universal. The future is bright for two reasons. One, it's God's church, not just ours. And thank God for that, that it's not all up to us to determine the future of that church. It's God who is guiding it. And the second is that this young generations of students I work with demonstrate a passion and love for God combined with this deep, deep love for demonstrating God's love and grace to all people. They do that in ways that look like the church that we've had for a long time and in new and unique ways that look like a new church than the one we have today. Look a little different than gathering together in pews, in rows, or at tables. But they have this creative energy that I think defines the future of the church as well. But this question that I get a lot, I think, demonstrates to me two truths about the church that I try to remind myself of every time I get the privilege of coming here and preaching to people other than college students every week. And those two truths are this, that the church today has two common bonds, two things that bind us together as we sit here in rows and bind our hearts together as we want to come back here every week. Those two bonds are this. We have the common bond of love and fear at the same time. Love and fear. I preach in a lot of different places, like I said, and in all of those places, I meet people who share a common love for their church and a common fear for their church that it might not live on into the next generation of people. I'm not going to tell you this is a bad assessment or that it's wrong to feel these feelings if you do. I think it's pretty obvious why it's good to love our church and to have that be a common bond that we have together. This is a good thing. It's obvious that it's a good thing to love your church, but it's also not wrong to look around at the state of the world, the state of our church, our church is, and the church's role in the world that it plays today, and feel a little discomfort and uncertainty, especially if we compare it to some caricature of the past that we think we know and what the church used to be in the world. This is the privilege I have as a guest preacher, is that tomorrow morning I get to go off to another job, and then Michael gets to come and talk to you about it, if <laughs> that makes you a little uncomfortable. But um, 
I still think that even though uh, I have the privilege of preaching and then leaving and going to that different job tomorrow, it's still true and something that I wouldn't want to ignore. Uh, I won't sit here and tell you that there's no reason to be scared for the church of the future. Maybe if my salary was dependent on it, I'd feel a little different. I'd be like, no, please, there is no reason to be scared. But there is. We all have eyes to see and to assess the state of the church today. Just because I believe that God's mission in our world will be fulfilled in and through the church does not mean that I think any individual church can't fail or that the future won't look any different than it does today. That I could stand here and promise you, as you gather here today, 50 years in the future, people will sit here and gather in this same way, and 50 years after that, until the day that Jesus Christ comes back, and then he says, well done, good and faithful servants, for keeping it just the way that it's been forever. I can't lie to you and tell you that I think that's true. In fact, I can give you an example from our rich United Methodist history, also from my own personal experience, that testifies to the fact that it's not true that no church can fail. I grew up in a small town in rural central Illinois. It's called Petersburg. If you're not familiar with it, that's okay. People in Illinois don't know where Petersburg, Illinois is. Um, And another town that no one's heard of just down the road from where I grew up is a town called Pleasant Plains. And in that town of Pleasant Plains resides a significant piece of Methodist history. I'm shocked you don't know about it. I'm shocked I don't already see heads shaking and yeah, Pleasant Plains, heard of that. Um, And that piece of Methodist history is a place called Peter Cartwright's United Methodist Church. Show of hands, everybody. What? Shocked. Um, Peter Cartwright's United Methodist Church Um, Unless you went to seminary and are a Methodist nerd like me, um, it's okay that you don't recognize that name, Peter Cartwright. But this man was one of the most influential figures in the history of Methodism in the United States. If you ever have to pay too much for a seminary textbook about Methodism, you're going to see his name in there a lot. Peter Cartwright lived around the turn of the 19th century and was ordained as a Methodist preacher in 1806 at the ripe old age of, get this, 20 years old was when he was ordained a pastor. And then by the time he was 26, Peter was appointed as a presiding elder, what we think of today as a district superintendent. Some of you have had the privilege of meeting our district superintendent, Emily Hotho, here. Um, And although the role then looked a lot different than what Emily does today. Emily's area is like from Tampa and St. Pete over just like east of here. You're like one of her easternmost churches. Um, Peter Cartwright, when he became the presiding elder or district superintendent of the Great Plains area, it was literally the whole Great Plains. He He covered by horseback, riding around and preaching every week in new places from Illinois as far east as Ohio, as far south as Tennessee, and as far north as the Canadian border. And this guy just hopped on his horse every week and rode around to a new town and found new people to preach to, whether it was Methodist churches or some street corner or a field full of people. That's all he did. But he always returned to his home base in in, uh, Pleasant Plains, Illinois. 
He was what was called a circuit rider, um, and that's important in the history of Methodism, but I won't bog you down in that. But Peter Cartwright was, I would argue, not just because I'm a Methodist, but because you can look at his track record and say that he was one of the most charismatic, effective preachers of all time. He personally referred to himself, not that there's a bit of ego in this, or Midwesternness. Um, he referred to himself as God's plowman. He went around plowing the fields to plant seeds and grow up a crop of God's harvest, of new souls who committed themselves to the Lord. There are hundreds of written testimonies of Cartwright's preaching tactics that drew a crowd when he was going on horseback from town to town. My personal favorite of, of the time when he rode into a church, not like up to it, he rode his horse inside the church because he was a little late, I guess, on horseback coming from Illinois to Ohio. And then he tied the horse up to the pulpit while he preached and then just went on about as if that was a normal thing. Um, I left my horse outside this morning. You're welcome. Um, another story that I think I would not want to pass up telling you is that Peter Cartwright was actually notorious for all of the revivals he would go to before he would start preaching because he was so charismatic and moving about uh, as he preached that he would take off his pistols that he kept in case he came across any wolves or coyotes or anything on the trail, and he would place them on the pulpit and then proceed to preach. That way he didn't have any accidental, you know. It's estimated that Peter Cartwright personally baptized 12,000 people around the Midwest in his 40-year career in ministry. But each week, he went back to his home church in Pleasant Plains, Illinois. This is a connection to Methodist history that the people in Pleasant Plains were very proud of, as you would expect, having that connection to such an influential figure in the history of Methodism. And over time, that church in Pleasant Plains enshrined and honored Peter Cartwright uh, in a way that they even went as far to rename their church after him. I don't even know what the church was named before it was named Peter Cartwright's Methodist Church. That's how quickly they wanted to honor this great man of faith. There was just one problem, though. It seems that the church became so dedicated to preserving Peter Cartwright's legacy that it gave up its vital role in the community that Cartwright himself forged. As the years went on, Peter Cartwright, UMC, got smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was very sad when I went back to my hometown last year to find out that Peter Cartwright had closed its doors two years ago. And now, it's just the annual conference continues to pay to keep the lights on, because it's a museum of a church that they used to be, but there's no longer a living church inside those doors. It's really now nothing more than a mausoleum to a church that once was very much alive and is now, sadly, dead. I think the story of Peter Cartwright UMC is not just an outlier, but it's a warning light to churches everywhere in this time where we have these fears about what the future might look like and the way that we react to that. The generations that followed Peter Cartwright loved their church too, a lot. 
They loved their church so much that they dedicated themselves to preserving what it used to look like. But they let their fear of the future, the future forgetting who they had been in the past, be the very thing that led to their death in the present. This story poses to the church today, I think, a very significant question. How do we love our church more than we're scared of it dying? How do we love our church without making it a mausoleum that prevents life from springing up in it in new and creative ways as we continue to walk towards the future together? In trying to answer this difficult, difficult question as faithfully as possible, I think it's really common, and again, not wrong, that we look for formulas available to us that are particularly life-giving. And instead, we just turn into an inauthentic version of our church at the same time that we do that. A dying church that gets a smoke machine and cool lights isn't any more alive than it was with a pipe organ and a choir. I'm not here to tell you that that's just the formula you have to follow because some people do it and it works for them, so why not try it out ourselves? But here's the good news for you all here, church. I do think that there are formulas that we can follow in Scripture that empower us to be more faithfully authentic to who we are and still fulfill the great commission that Jesus gives to us to share God's love with everyone that we meet in the world. And I think that our scripture lesson for today from the book of Hebrews gives us this kind of faithful formula to be a church that embraces our common love for God, for each other, and for others more than we want to embrace our common fears that we might have together as well. While for a long time here in this passage from Hebrews, we attributed the writing of this letter to Paul, uh, and that's because it was written in a similar style that we see all of Paul's letters written in. It's now sort of the general consensus amongst Bible nerds that uh, this letter might have not actually been written by Paul, but someone else who was a faithful leader in the early church. And I belong to that aforementioned Bible nerd community. So usually when I preach, I try to like explain all of those details because I think they're interesting and I think they can maybe be illuminating for the text. However, I don't want to do that with this text today. It's not that I find that context any less interesting or any more boring to you all than uh, I might think. Um, but I think that the content of this passage, what we read here in Hebrews 10, is profoundly more interesting than the context that it's placed in. In fact, the content from this passage in Hebrews 10 is so intriguing to me precisely because of this mysterious context that where we don't know quite who the author might have been. And there's some question marks here and there that it's interesting. But the content then is even more interesting when we don't know that it's from this person we've already determined is valid and faithful and relevant like Paul. 
It's undeniable that this author, whoever they may be, of this particular passage, understood deeply and communicated in a very clear, concise way the purpose and mission of a very difficult subject. The church, us, God's people that gather together every week in sanctuaries. See, a lot of times in the New Testament, we get like theological explanations of what the church should be. We get, you know, Paul talking about we should be like a body or we should be like, you know, bread and juice. We should be all of these different things that are important theological concepts to understand. But here we get something different. In Hebrews 10, we get a clear and simple statement about what we should do when all of these people who want to follow Jesus enter a sanctuary together at the same time every week. And it comes in the last two verses. It says, let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. This is a simple, concise statement of purpose for the church to follow in light of all of these big theological claims that we make. We can actually just see this in the language that it shifts from. It starts with, therefore, we have all these claims. Therefore, we have these claims about baptism. We have these claims about communion. We have these claims about who Jesus was and who we are because of Jesus. But then it moves on to different types of language, where it says, let us now consider. We know all that. We've established all that. That's good and important. But now let us consider our mission together. It says the way to authentically be the church that you are and to let your love for God and others be larger than your fears of who you may or may not be in the future, it's this. Meet together regularly. Step one. And congratulations. You all have already taken that step. Good job. Step one is meet together regularly. Step two, encourage one another. When you meet together, don't just sit there and wave from pews across the rows and say, peace be with you, have a good week. Meet together for the sake of encouraging one another beyond that surface level of, hey, hope you're doing good. Meet together for encouraging one another to grow in our spiritual lives. Meet together for the purpose, not just to encourage one another, but also to provoke one another to love and good deeds. This formula is annoyingly simple to me when I read it. I use the word annoying because I think that usually when I follow formulas, I want to know, if I add X and Y together, I get Z. Here's my outcome. Here's the thing that I'm going to get. That's not what we get here from Hebrews. While we as humans may be like sort of addicted to, if I do this, I want to know that I get this. If I input this much stuff, I get this much out of that. That's not what we get here in Hebrews 10. It doesn't say if you live in this way, your church will grow exponentially. It doesn't say... If you live in this particular way, things will never change because of the way you live. But I do think that this passage here 
through it, God is calling us to embrace this way of living that is more about faithful presence in this moment where we live than trying to just build mausoleums around things of the past or trying to be like we're some type of oracle that can predict the future of God's church that God has told us he is in control of. I think our fear of the church of the future, not remembering what is important to us in this time that we live in, particularly remembering to preserve the things we really like about our churches and to stay away from the things that we really don't like about the world or other people, leads us to let our fears be greater than our loves that bind us together. This is the lesson I think that should be learned from a church like Peter Cartwright United Methodist Church and several other churches that chose to lean into their fears of how the future might forget to tell their story the way that they want them to. Rather than encouraging and provoking one another to love and good deeds. I'd like to leave you today with a more positive example of how to embrace the possibility of the present moment, of how to embrace our common loves rather than our common fears. This story is uh, not really my own, but one that I learned from something that I would call a spiritual discipline of mine. Um, I've developed it over the years of preaching, and it's, it's actually really simple. What I do is I sit down before, this is like the week before I'm preaching, I sit down, sometimes I'm on my couch or at my desk, I get in a comfortable position, I take a few deep breaths, I center myself, and there's actually a word for what I do, it's called procrastinating, I think is what it's called. Um, and when I do this, I always get these types of divine revelations that come to me. Well, I should be writing the sermon, and I want to just be transparent here. This week was no exception to that divine revelation that came by way of procrastinating. Um, I sat down uh, to prepare my sermon for this morning, and it's, I, this wasn't this morning, let me say. Uh, <laughs> but I sat down to prepare for today, and then I uh, started watching YouTube videos instead. That's my chosen medium, usually, for my procrastinating practice. Um, and then I started to watch celebrity interviews, and I saw this interview with a guy named Rick Rubin. Does anyone know that name, Rick Rubin? Wow, as many people know Peter Cartwright as Rick Rubin? Okay, good. <laughs> we got a few people who know Rick Rubin. Well, if you don't know his name, you're certainly familiar with Rick Rubin's work. Rick Rubin is undoubtedly, uh, you can argue with me later if you disagree, but I think that Rick Rubin is undoubtedly one of the most influential figures in like modern music today. He's a music producer, and he has worked with figures from Johnny Cash to Run DMC to the Red Hot Chili Peppers to Adele to Bob Marley and to, I'm going to stop there because there's a long list of artists that, that, um, that Rick Rubin has worked with over the years. And he's been the music producer for all of them. And a lot of them claim that his, his influence is what led them to make the productions that they did at the end of the day. So this video I was watching for my uh, spiritual discipline, that's what I decided to call it today, um, was a tour of his recording studio that he's owned since 2011. And uh, it's not dramatic at all. They call this place Shangri-La. 
Uh, it's the, supposed to be the place where musicians come to have all their dreams come true, I guess. Um, it's sort of like a musical paradise. And like I said, almost every major recording artist of our time has worked with him, so all those who are now major are trying to work with him to steal some of his mojo. Um, and the inter interviewer noted something that I didn't really note as they walked through this property of Shangri-La. They sat down in his office and they said, I noticed something. I haven't seen a single award or record you've produced anywhere here on the property of Shangri-La. Why is that? This is a significant point because, as you would think, all the artists he's worked with, Rick Rubin has won more awards than any music producer, like, of all time. And Rubin's response was a profound one. He said, I want my office to look like my career, a blank slate. Why would I try to do something I've already done before? Why would I surround myself with the burden of reminders of benchmarks that I've already hit? He could have surrounded himself with these reminders of his successes, put his gold and platinum records up all over the wall. Instead, he literally makes his workspace a blank slate for new creative possibility to happen in the future. This isn't just a profound reflection about a storied career. It's significant advice for how we should perceive the opportunities of each moment that comes our way, both for who we want ourselves to be and how we want our church to be in the present and the future. As we talk about the purpose of the church and our hopes for its future, it's my hope that we never forget that we have a simple and profound purpose for being here this morning. Meet together regularly. Good job. You're already doing it. The next two, though, are significant. Encourage one another. When you meet, talk to each other about what's going on in your lives. How can you support the work that God is already doing in your lives as a community? And the third is to provoke one another to love and good deeds. To encourage one another to keep up the good work so it's not just about when we gather here in the sanctuary together, but what we do when we leave here. That's the thing that really makes this church a place where people should want to be. And that's what makes that slogan that your pastor has that he says all the time so significant. When you are here meeting together, encouraging one another, and provoking one another to good deeds every chance you get, you will see the truth, and so will everyone who walks through this door, that it's better when you're here too. I can't tell you what the church of the future will look like, what the future of shepherds will look like, the future of the Methodist church, the future of the church universal. But I can tell you this. If we keep meeting together regularly, encouraging one another, and provoking each other to good deeds, we will continue to become the people and the church that God longs for us to be. Will you pray with me? All right, friends. I hope you heard something in today's message that made an impact in your life, helped you know that you're loved by God, and inspired you to do something about the gospel that is offered to you. Now receive this blessing as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.